0: Our guest is more than welcome, particularly because the last time he was here, I couldn't talk at all. Uh, Leon Kass is here uh, of the uh, University of Chicago, physician by original training, philosopher, literary scholar, uh, and these days... On leave in Washington, where he is chairman of the President's Council on Bioethics, I should explain myself, shouldn't I? I had laryngitis tonight. Yes, yes, yes. you year. did
1: indeed, and I got to say more than I usually do, Milt. But it's a pleasure to be back with since you, you are as a always. You should have done something to, to <laughs> it was, secure uh, me. Hot okay. fluids.
0: I sent you home to bed. <laughs> you, that, was, that was proper advice. In the beginning,
1: what? Uh, in the beginning, um, well, this is. Uh, a mystery, what's in the beginning, mm-hmm. and... Uh, God created heaven and the earth. In, in the beginning, it says God created the heaven and the earth, uh, and the earth was unformed and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. So begins the first book of the Bible, the seminal and founding text of uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, absolutely central to uh, Western civilization.
0: And you have taken on, not just that first verse, but you've taken on the first book, the book of Genesis, in a new book titled The Beginning of Wisdom, Reading Genesis by Leon R. which was published recently by Free Press.
1: You're not the first one to do a midrash on Genesis, are you? I should say not. I mean, this is uh, uh, the commentaries on, on this book, on the whole of the Hebrew Bible, uh, has been the major occupation of uh, rabbis and scholars and ordinary people for generations. Uh, and uh, I ventured into this territory quite by accident and with trepidation. Uh, I wasn't reared on this book, Milt. I was reared in a, in a completely secular, Yiddish-speaking uh, home.
0: As was I. Uh, uh, we right? talked about this yeah, before, we have, I think. Right. Yeah, I was reared in such a home in New York. You were reared in such a home?
1: Uh, I wasn't bar mitzvahed. I was in the synagogue maybe once or twice until my adulthood for the occasion of some celebration of some member of my family. Uh, And that I should have, uh, in in my old age, uh, written a book on on, on Genesis is, uh, I suppose, a miracle, uh, given where I started life.
0: Well, it comes out of a course that you did for some 12 or 15 years. For almost 20
1: years. 20 years? Yeah.
0: At the University of Chicago. At the University
1: of Chicago. I started, um, my wife and I found that an undergraduate Common Core course that still exists called Human Being and Citizen. The question of the course is what is a good human being and what is a good citizen and what happens when they're in conflict. And in that course, uh, of course, we included, uh, these were were, uh, great texts uh, in this course. And in this course, we included uh, Genesis and Exodus, and also the Gospel of Matthew as part of the. So you, had to, read, you had to read it. So I had to read it. <laughs> and um, the, to begin with, the story sort of got a hold of me, uh-huh. um, and uh, we'd bring them home to the dinner table. They were endless conversation. And then a uh, couple of years later, I'm giving, about a year or two later, I'm giving a lecture uh, at St. John's College in Santa Fe on Darwin, as a matter of fact and uh i go off with my friend uh i asked him to take me go hunting fossils i was in a darwinian mood and i'm sitting there chipping away at rocks uh looking for fossils uh, unsuccessfully i should suggest but i found something more valuable than fossils my friend had just written a commentary on genesis and he starts regaling me with Mm, story after story this fellow robert Sachs. robert Sachs, yeah uh who actually had been at chicago years ago Mm -hmm. i didn't know him then and he pointed out all kinds of things in this book that made me realize it was a much more carefully put together thing that I had ever imagined.
0: You know how interesting, a juxtaposition of, of references or associations. You were looking for fossils, but your friend uh, led you to the Bible, and, and particularly soon to Genesis. But one remembers uh, the comment of a famous British historian that... Uh, that Judaism is a fossil
1: religion. Yeah, no, I, rem- I was reminded of this, Arnold Toynbee. Uh, Arnold Toynbee, in his book uh, "Study of History," uh, said of Judaism that it was a fossil. It's
0: religion. all used up. It's
1: merely a, a curiosity to the uh, uh, yeah. to the archaeologist, essentially. No, exactly. And um, I was reminded of this because when I was a student at the University of Chicago. Uh, Maurice Samuel, who was uh man you probably knew uh, I, I read him when I was a kid, yeah, just as you did I guess yeah well i yeah. I read him only in, in much much later, but he uh he took toin beyond. he wrote yeah. a little book called The Professor and the Fossil yeah and I was reminded of that uh, in that here mm-hmm. I was uh, you know, a professor who had somehow discovered this this so called fossil religion in part with the help also of another book that Samuel himself wrote called Certain People mm. of the Book, which is quite wonderful. Yeah. But uh, you said that you came home
0: uh, at the university once you started doing the seminar. You right. came home every night full of stories about and conversation between you and Amy, I guess, your yeah, wife. between
1: my wife and I. We, and, the, and, were and, and, the, and the kids, too.
0: But there were things in the story. The things in uh, the, the, the stories. What were some of these things you brought home? and regale the kids with?
1: Well, the question of um, the Garden of Eden, I think, was a conversation at the dinner table off and on mm-hmm. for 15 years, uh, Good. each time trying to figure out what in the world is going on in
0: this. still a great mystery to me, it, and I'll, I'll pick up on that directly. We have many things to talk about, good. all of which we find in Genesis.
1: What in the world is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Okay, shall we start with that? Please. Well, um, First of all, let me say that I uh, don't read the story of the Garden of Eden as a historical account. I read it as uh, mythic in the important sense that myths might be truer than history. In other this, words, you're
0: not an orthodox rabbi.
1: I'm not an orthodox rabbi, but I'm not sure that the orthodox rabbi think that there really was a place called Eden in which these people mm. were, and I don't think it matters from the point of view of the I mean, They know it
0: might be metaphorical, also. It
1: might be mythical. And what you have here is the presentation of what looks to be history, but which is a vehicle for conveying to us certain per- permanent features of the human condition. So Adam and Eve are not so much the, the historically first as that they are the exemplary man and woman. Not in the sense of the ideal, but natural man, natural woman, uninstructed. Okay. God creates this man. He puts him in this garden. And in the vicinity of this man, there are these two trees of special significance. The tree of life, eating from which would produce deathlessness. Deathlessness and the tree of knowledge of good and bad which God prohibits to the man. I take these two trees, have to tr- treat them together. There's something about the quiet, innocent, happy condition of man in his pristine condition that um, is in danger of disturbing that idyllic happiness. And they're represented symbolically by these two trees. One is man might eventually become fearful of mortality, and therefore the fear of death would lead him to seek immortality, and therefore the tree of deathlessness stands as an answer to one of man's things that would disturb his peace of mind. The other thing that could disturb his peace of mind is um, the kind of desire to take matters into his own hands to, instead of following either instinct or the command of his parents or, in this case, of God, he might get it into his head that he could figure out how he should live on the basis of knowledge found in his garden, so to speak, on the basis of his own experience with his own reason following his eyes to the world around him. And I take the tree of knowledge of good and bad to stand for just the kind of knowledge that human beings think they have when they choose for themselves how to live. So that the warning that God gives at the beginning is to say, look, if you want to have this kind of innocent condition of unself-divided contentment with your lot, the knowledge of good and bad uh, will disturb your peace forever. But God warns, if if you eat of that tree
0: of the knowledge of good and evil, I will kill
1: you. It doesn't say, I will kill you. No, you're, no, 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 you will no. he will die. says, you will so, die. You will die. You will die. He does, and, in fact, he doesn't kill them. That's my point. Yeah.
0: I was about to ask, why
1: Why do they not die?
0: Well, it's... it's, it's After Eve has been tempted and she eats, and then she tempts Adam to eat um, uh, of the tree.
1: Well, they don't literally die, and, in fact, they live to a ripe old age. Adam yes, lives indeed. well into the 900s before he drops dead. But something does die in, them. The, in them. That is yeah. to say, that kind of... That childlike innocence, that undivided, unselfconscious participation immediately and spontaneously in the goodness of life, that's finished.
0: You know, the mind jumps forward many centuries, uh, to the uh, 18th century, in fact, uh, to Jean-Jacques Rousseau.
1: Yes, he uh, he was a pretty good reader of the Bible, though not a friend to the Bible. But his uh, innocent, Emile, is
0: in the natural world untouched by the corruptions of civilization. It's sort of equivalent to Adam before the eating.
1: I think he was very much influenced by that and that is that there there is a stratum of human life. Um, It is the most elementary stratum Mm -hmm. informed by our basic needs for food and drink and repose. It's what you medical guys or biological types used to call the vegetative. Yeah, the the vegetative functions put down disparaging with disparagement. On the other hand, um, even though we wouldn't want to go back into the forest and live like bears, um, we have a kind of envy of the innocent and wholehearted participation in life which we see in our grandchildren at a very early age, Mm -hmm. in which they're not disturbed by self-consciousness, they don't sit on their shoulders and watch themselves, they go to life with with gusto, spontaneity, with abandon, and if their basic needs are met, they're by and large content. Um, and that is the element of life of man before the creation of woman. Ah, before the creation of woman. Before the creation, yeah. And, um, it, I mean, let's rehearse this. God creates the man, this time out of the dust of the ground and uh, the breath of life. He puts him in this idyllic place. It's a bountiful place. He can eat of all of the trees, save this symbolic tree, in effect saying don't choose for yourself, don't arrogate to yourself, or don't think that you have a kind of knowledge on the basis of which you can decide how to live better than this, you'll be sorry. Then there's another thing which is somewhat disturbing. Um, It is not good, says God, for the man to be alone. And most people think that um, this means that he's lonely right? That it's not good for him to be alone because loneliness is a, being alone is a badge of weakness and lonely. And uh, But it's also possible to say it's not good for the man to be alone in the way in which Achilles was alone or the heroes are alone. That is to say, aspiring to self-sufficiency and having kind of exalted views. Um, and God decides to send him a uh, it's the King James translates a helpmeet. Isn't it interesting though that before God uh, makes Eve out of the rib,
0: He creates all the other animals.
1: Yeah, the first attempt is to produce the produce the animals, uh, and He gives them to Adam to name. He gives them to Adam in order to name them, and uh, we don't hear the names Adam calls no. them. Um, it would be very interesting to know what he names them, but. Uh, I take it that that encounter with the animals gives Adam the sense that he's really rather different from the animals, and it also creates in him a kind of desire for his own counterpart. So that um, he he's somehow made to feel a kind of desire which he did not have. <laughs> God said it was not good for the man to be alone. Man didn't know that he was alone and didn't know that it wasn't good until he began to get company that wasn't quite then suitable. It is the,
0: then it is the woman who leads him, who yields to the serpent, and then in turn leads him to the tree, to eat of the fruit of the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. So the woman, in a way, is producing the pain of full humanization. The,
1: the, the woman uh, in in the western tradition gets a bad rap i mean yeah. it's it's in a way true that she is the instigator of disobedience but if disobedience really is the emergence of human independence of she, human she awakens him to the possibility of free action exactly and the consequences thereof no, I- exactly right yeah. and uh, while he um uh, when she's brought to him uh and, and God doesn't bring him to her to name. He just brings him to her. He expostulates this at last is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. Um, and he is now filled with desire for her.
0: Now, here's our plan. Please. Uh, it's, uh, the first part of the plan is it's time to stop with some commercial. Okay. We could go to the very beginning and examine the cosmology. How in the world did God do all of this stuff in seven days and what did the seven days mean? But that's tiresome because everybody plays with it. Instead, I'm going to give you something else. Um, I I get into this with a wonderful quotation from Max Beerbohm, who says of another group of uh, literary documents, they were a tense and peculiar family, the edifices, weren't they? (laughs) One might say of the Abrahams, if one could call them that, uh, or the Abrahamic line, they were a tense and peculiar family also. And what all the rest of the book of Genesis is about, basically, well, God steps in, he's disillusioned with the world, he kills it all off with the flood except for Noah and the two-by-two selection of the animals for the ark, and then it all starts up again through the descendants of Noah, and some generations down the line, uh, we have Abraham, and that's really the beginning of the family tale, which is all the rest of the book of Genesis. It's easily three-fourths of the book, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, Abraham comes in chapter 12, the 50 chapters. Yeah, there you so are. So right. the three generations. So we're going to look in on the Abrahams and find out what all those incredible stories in the book of Genesis about Abraham and his descendants uh, have to tell us about the human condition, about the challenge uh, of human existence, and about the high possibilities of human existence. Excellent. All to follow in conversation with Leon Kass and drawing from his new book, In the Beginning, rather the beginning of wisdom reading Genesis, all to follow, as I say, right after these words. And we return to Leon Cass, professor of, what are you professor of at the University of Chicago? In the Committee on Social Thought. Uh, The Committee on Social Thought, which I should explain to others who are listening and don't know the University of Chicago, is interdisciplinary, and it's really considered the intellectual high point of the University of Chicago on the humanities side. Yeah, it's one of the, it it has been a very distinguished uh, group
1: over the years, Milton.
0: And Leon Cass is these days on leave and is chairman of the President's Council on Bioethics. He's assisted in that high position by his earlier training as a physician. Uh, He is also the Hertog Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And his latest book, and his most massive one, but then it deserves to be massive, uh, is The Beginning of Wisdom, Reading Genesis, published by Free Press uh, just about a month or two ago. Uh, Well, I said, let's get to that rather tempestuous family, but uh, you, uh, Abraham, but you quite rightly pointed out to me uh, during the commercials, we had really better go back to Adam's family and look at the troubling case of Cain and Abel, and you're right.
1: Well, the first, uh, the first family, uh, uh, there, was, there was trouble in the nest, and the, as I suggested, just as Adam and Eve might be seen as the paradigmatic man and woman uninstructed, So Cain and Abel, the first two brothers, the first, in fact, Cain is the first person actually born into Mm -hmm. the world, and therefore in some ways it's the human prototype. Cain and Abel are what brothers would be like in the absence of further instruction of the sort the Bible itself means to give us. And here, um, where two between man and woman is the coupling number, two between brothers is the number of rivalry, rivalry to the point point of fratricide. So that one of the interesting questions, in fact, my one of the theses of the book is that... The
0: second man, the first man born of woman, is the first murderer. Is the first murderer.
1: He's also That the, tells us something about the potential of the human being for outright evil. Exactly. And um, uh, if you stop to think about it, uh, in fact, Cain is named by Eve in a kind of boastful way. Uh, she has a son, Cain. I have gotten a man equally with the Lord," she says, "and the name of Cain uh, is in. He, Cain has a proud name, um, formed and possession,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and he's sitting pretty. Uh, he's in the family business. He's doing agriculture, and along comes this 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 uh, shepherd, this lazy shepherd, um, his younger brother, his younger brother, um, and. Uh, it must occur to him that maybe there was something the matter with him, else why would they have had a second one? And he invents the idea of sacrificing to the deity. He doesn't really know who God is. He sacrifices to the deity, I assume, because it might be helpful to the crops. Um, yet uh, his sacrifice is not yet accepted, and his brother's is, and his heart is filled with rage because he has been surpassed by his uh, his, uh Follower, following younger brother. God speaks to Cain, Mm. tries to tell him, Look, uh, why are you so, why is your face fallen? If you do well, there'll be a lifting. He doesn't tell him what it means to do well. It's very cryptic. Cain gets it into his head that maybe doing well means getting rid of your rival. And he gets him out into the field and he murders him. Um, And there being no law against murder to that point, It's only really when God interrogates him that it becomes somehow clear that he's done this horrendous deed. Um, But I think the important point I want to stress is that these beginning stories before you come to see Abraham show you certain deep truths about the human condition, psychic Mm -hmm. and social, and they're not pretty. Let's hear the few verses that convey this story. And the Lord said unto Cain,
0: Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear.
1: Now this remark, this very famous remark, um, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? In effect, he's saying, God... You liked him. Why didn't you look after him? I mean, it's an outrageous statement, but it's also a confession of guilt. I mean, that it's a kind of, uh, and uh, and when God says to him, thy brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, there's been a kind of outrage. The ground was to have been watered with rain, Hmm. and now it has been watered with human blood. And Cain goes off and in fact founds the first city. I mean, the, the Hebrew tradition, like the, the, the Roman tradition, has the first city founded by fratricide. In the case of Rome, Rome was founded by Romulus, who killed his brother Remus. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are deep stories. Well, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Right. And he built there his first city. And his descendants are men of the arts and creatures of violence. So what you see before you get to Abraham is you see that hmm. um, there, there are deep elements in the human soul. Jealousy, anger, shame, uh, a kind of, uh are two twin tendencies. To wildness on the one hand that you see with Cain, and also in the story of Babel, which hmm. comes just before Abraham, the dangerous temptation of mankind to rely on rationality, speech, and the arts to build a city which would, yeah. in effect, take the place of God—that's uh,
0: hubristic aspiration right. beyond all acceptability. Right. So that's that's the background. God knocks down those who aspire to be gods. He, he indeed, he does.
1: Um, But at that particular point... And the Greeks knew that as well. The Greeks knew that, and and to some extent this is similar, but the solution is different. The solution is different. What you have before Abraham is you have, first of all, the condition of innocence in the garden before the transgression. Then you have life outside the garden, living on this so-called knowledge of good and bad, which isn't really true knowledge of good and bad, the kind of anarchic condition which results in the murder of Cain, of, of Abel by Cain then um, the world degenerates into violence I, in the book i have an interesting account of that. we won't go into it here and god starts over as you said with noah but with a new law a law that prohibits homicide and whoever shed man's blood by man shall his blood be shed but why does god get so
0: angry or why is he so punitive as to kill all of the human race except for for noah uh, except for noah and, and his, his wife and uh, sons and their daughters and i suppose there must have been some daughters with their husbands. Well, he um, saves only one
1: family out of all of the human race. Yeah, it, it, The reason isn't fully given, though it is said that Noah was a man who was righteous and wholehearted in his generation.
0: Oh, yeah, well, that's fine for Noah. Noah deserves to survive. But why do all why the others is? deserve to be killed by
1: um, the Lord their God, even if they are aberrant? Uh, it, it's, the world had descended into a kind of violence... Uh, and slaughter that one could say God simply pushed it to its logical conclusion. There was a heroic age there where the giants were slaughtering one another right and left to win great glory and fame. What do you say
0: to the skeptical kid who hears this sort of thing and says, yeah, but wait a minute, God is all-powerful. Whatever happened, he willed. Why did he let man or why did he make man grow so evil so quickly in in the history of the creation of the human
1: race? Well, that's, that's, I think, to put the wrong questions to the text. Um, if you're reading it as, as history simply, then you're going to be interrogating God's intentions and his motives. Those stories are, I think, meant to show us that simple innocence, anarchy, and even the kind of new beginning with a semi-just man like Noah can't work. It's been tried The highest principle of being has shown you that it's impossible to live like that. You can't just live on human resources. You can't live simply on human resources, uninstructed. Mm -hmm. A new way has to be found. And up until Abraham, God tries, whatever he tries, he tries with universal humankind united. What does humankind universal, humankind united do? They build themselves this city. Yeah. All, the whole hu- human race was, was part right. of this project.
0: And me. later on they fall upon one another. And, and they do fall
1: In on. general they remain kind of uncontrollable and uh, regressive. Right. So the new solution, the the new attempt is to try still to bring some kind of path of righteousness and holiness to the whole human race, but to do so not working with them all at one time but to start, to try to launch, uh, to 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 establish a small beachhead for God's way in the world, and with that he does, and that he does with Abraham, with a particular family, with so to speak. You've got to start somewhere. Yeah, and he summons Abraham uh, away from Babylon, where Abraham lived, and he tells Abraham to get himself out of his father's house and from his homeland and from his family to a land that he will show him God calls Abraham absolutely out of the blue. He doesn't tell him who he is. Abraham hears this voice. The reader is told that it's the Lord calling. Abraham hears this voice. He tells him to leave, and he gives them this sevenfold glorious promise. And Abraham, without a peep, gets up and goes. The pious reading is that Abraham is already a monotheist, and he Mm. knows already who's calling him. My reading is that he has these great longings. He has longings for family because he's childless. He has longings for a home because his father has already moved halfway to the Promised Land on his own. He has longings for a God because he has seen through the the worship of heaven, which is what they do in Babel. He goes because um, he wants to find out whether this voice can actually deliver on this promise. He suspends his disbelief and takes a a walk with his voice, just as the skeptical reader who picks up the book of Genesis and doesn't know who's speaking to him at the beginning, if he suspends his disbelief and takes a walk with his voice, might just find out who's speaking to him. But it's a long walk
0: with little reward, uh, and he and and Sarah remain
1: childless. They remain childless. Until he is about 100 years old. When he leaves, he's 75 when he's called. Um, and uh, they go, Sarah is ten years younger, she's 65 and barren. And they go and they arrive in the Promised Land, and of course, the first thing that's pointed out is this land that he promised him is occupied, the Canaanites in the land. Well, who who else would you expect to be in the land of Canaan but the Canaanites, the natives there? Um, and Abraham builds an altar and he says, God, are you still around, are you still with me? Mm-hmm. And he says, don't worry, he says, I will make your seed as numerous as the grains of sand here and then begin the series of 10 or 11 adventures, some of them initiated by God, most of them initiated by Abraham, some of them acting on his own. And I call these adventures Abraham's education. He gets an education in marriage. He gets an education in justice. He gets an education in actually who it is that's calling him. He gets an education Mm -hmm. in external relations. Um, and it begins, for example, when he goes down into Egypt. Uh, there's a famine
0: mm-hmm.
1: in, in the land of, of Canaan. Uninstructed, he goes down to Egypt, which is, of course, always in the Bible, the land of plenty, uh, the, 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 the most advanced civilization yeah. of the world. He goes down there. Sarah's very beautiful. He tells her, look, you know, they're going to see you. You're very beautiful. Please say you're my sister otherwise they might kill me and after all God has made me this great promise I can't be killed. He passes her off as his sister. She's immediately taken to Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh's got these henchmen who round up all the beautiful women for the harem and um, Abraham is sitting pretty there but without telling Abraham that he does this God sends a plague on to Pharaoh's house and uh, Pharaoh figures out that this plague must have to do with this woman, and finally, although we don't have the dialogue, he discovers that it's not Abraham's sister, but his wife, and he sends him out. But hold on a minute. Sorry.
0: So you make a good deal. Uh, there's a long, uh, significant discussion in your book of
1: the fact that, in fact, Sarah is his half sister, as well as his wife. That's correct. I mean, we don't know this. We, we don't know this at the beginning. We're told, uh, it comes to light later right. on, that he married his half-sister, the daughter of his father but not of his right. mother. Um, and one of the things... Something that, which God will interdict in taboo later on. Much later on, uh, that, that this uh, this kind of union is, is, is yeah. an abomination, is forbidden. Um, one, of the, one of the things that Abraham gradually learns and we readers learn with him is that um, You might be able to choose a wife, but you can't decide what a wife means and pass her off as your sister when it becomes convenient, or to put it another way around. Abraham is, as it were, in the narrative given to wife a woman who is his half-sister in order gradually to instruct somebody that exogamy rather than incest is the proper way. And that um, he's given a woman who is both his sister and his wife so that he has eventually to choose. Is she going to be treated as his sister when it's convenient? Or does a wife mean a permanent partner, especially with respect to not just bearing, but rearing the seed of the next generation? And does it require of the husband obligations to treat her with decency, respect, and protection? Uh, Absolutely. And in the crucial moments in this story, uh, and he passes off Sarah as his wife twice, And it's only after the second time when he does this with this uh, king of the Philistines, Abimelech, Abimelech, who um, chastises Abraham for doing this. He doesn't, like Pharaoh, sort of fulminate Mm -hmm. against him. He chastises him um, and then makes great gifts to Sarah and shows Abraham up as a man who has, in a way, mistreated his wife. Gives her silver
0: the, to cover her eyes, is it? Yeah.
1: That's a veil that will maintain her modesty. That's beautifully it's beautifully said, Mel. That's exactly mm. right. I mean, uh, and um, it's only at that point that Abraham somehow realizes that the wife is not just a seedbed, as Hagar was. Mm. He accepted Hagar uh, earlier on to, to bear Ishmael. And it's only at that point that Isaac can be born to Sarah. It's only when he's in fact come to recognize the difference between wife and sister and the full meaning of wife, uh, and 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 that 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 Isaac is born, and in all those crucial places, mm. God tells him, "Hearken to the voice of your wife," but also, "Hearken to the voice
0: of the Lord." And later on, indeed, for us later on, after we take care of some impending commercials. Uh, the voice of the Lord is very conveys a very strange and frightening message concerning Isaac, Indeed. the firstborn. He tells uh, Abraham, now once Abram, now Abraham, once the father of many, now the father of multitudes, I right. believe, in terms of the translation of those words from the Hebrew. And he tells him, now you're going to have to kill your son and all, make him as a burnt offering to the Lord. Uh, an interesting moment of conflict, yes, to which we will return right after we pause for these words. And, Leon Kass, before we come to the order to sacrifice Isaac, uh, I think it important that I raise another kind of question, a sort of a scholar's question, and that is to say, what's your understanding of how this Bible, how the Hebrew Bible was made, and why it was made, and by whom? I don't mean that you're supposed to give me the name of the author, and we know that the scholars say there are different, uh, there are the visible different hands in in the organization of the Old Testament as there are indeed in the organization of the New Testament but um, when it was put together, and it wasn't put together all that long ago, only about a thousand or at the most fifteen hundred years ago, portions of it, uh, what am I saying, Uh, two thousand to twenty-five hundred years ago or at the most three thousand years ago for some of the oldest portions of the Old Testament um, what were they trying to say other than just using mythic tales that were part of the folk history of a people who became
1: ultimately the Jews? Well, um, I don't dispute that there are multiple strands of what uh, is now a canonical text. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, there wasn't a canonical text. There were separate scrolls, sure. which were only much later put together uh, as a single thing. And called, we know that the
0: first, uh, the first five books, the books of Moses, were put together, um, in translation at least, uh, by a group of Jewish scholars in Alexandria. Right. The pentateuch, meaning the seventy scholars, right? Uh, uh, but, um, but they surely meant more than to just uh, pull out stories that are part of the folk history. No, it, it, They meant to to say something allegorical and to say something of profounder content than merely here's a whooping good story.
1: No, absolutely. And uh, I think um, I mean at a certain point. Uh, the text does become something like what we would call history, uh, even though the word history mm. doesn't occur yeah. in the Bible. History is a 19th in the later century books beyond
0: the, beyond the first part. Right.
1: Um,
0: but um, and some of the books are rather dull. Uh, that is, when they get when you're into Leviticus and you get all of the the laws and all the priestly regulations and so on. I don't find it's not it as dull, good reading. It's, it's, not, as it's, good it's, reading it's, it's not as
1: exciting reading, but uh, uh, it's. Uh, it's fun to try to make sense sure. out of exactly why these and what what is going on. But there's on not here. as good a yarn as you as were saying. No, the, no the, the, the tales of the beginning are incomparable. But, uh, look, um, these things were, I don't know who put them together, but I'm inclined to think that they are put together with a governing inten- intention and by a magnificent intelligence in which the order of presentation is not so much a matter of chronology, as it is uh, uh, it has a pedagogical purpose Mm. Uh, in the beginning chapter for example the chapter on cosmology or the creation of the world the Bible is in polemic against various other creation myths that were popular in the ancient Near East, particularly creation myths that featured sexu- the, the origin of, through sexual union of a god and a goddess, mm-hmm. uh, in which case you'd necessarily have more than one god in order to, to have the beginning of the world. Um, and the stories of Babel are uh, or the flood are retelling but not retelling, po- polemical um, uh, retelling with a biblical point. Well, the certain... flood we know we have in
0: an earlier version in the, uh, in, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Don't we? Right, in, in, the, uh, in,
1: in, in, in the Gilgamesh Epic you have the, you have the tale of the Babylonian yeah. flood but the differences between the flood as recounted here and the flood as recounted there are, are enormous. So um, the, the Bible in presenting those beginning tales up to Abraham is engaged in a kind of silent, quiet polemic against the alternative teachings of other cultures. Mm. And I should emphasize, by the way, that although the family stories in Genesis are very important, because you're, after all, starting a new way with one person, and eventually you've got to take the the story from one person Mm. up to a swollen, swell it up to a tribe in order to get a nation that would be the bearer of this new way. But the book is also interested in deep cultural differences. You have the Israelite nation being formed in a world in which the Poles are already occupied by the heaven-worshipping Babylonians, by the earth-worshipping and rather licentious Canaanites, and by the Egyptians, which... Uh, whom you were, call technicians, or... Yeah, that, that, it's, it's the technological... A technocratic society. It, thing, it right? really is. I what mean, do you mean by that? It's, um, they want to beat death. They, they certainly do that um and it is a place of administrative genius of agricultural plenty of high science and technology um the pyramids are in fact known to be the repository of tremendous astronomical and mathematical lore um and uh in some ways they're preoccupied with longevity and mortality when mm-hmm. pharaoh meets. Jacob the first question out of Pharaoh's mouth is how old are you and Jacob who understands what's up says oh he says uh, uh, few and, and sorrowful have been my years. no reason to envy me O oh great Pharaoh um, but the, the name of the game in Egypt oh, the time is he's about. Eight hundred or
0: so. Uh, sorry. At the time, no, he's were... about 150. Oh, oh yeah. Ja- Jacob's only. That's friend. right. God ordained that he wouldn't have these long lives. Yeah, they went down time. to 120. Right, Jacob, right.
1: I have forgotten exactly. Lived into 150, right. something like that. Um, uh, but the name of the game in in Egypt really is the pursuit of immortality. And um, yeah. I mean, to skip around a little bit, the very end. And you of...
0: think that's a reflection of the
1: fact that there that there was an awareness
0: of these different ways of life on the part of those people who became the Hebrews who became the Jews. Oh absolutely, and Abs- they, absolutely. They needed to differentiate themselves from those other ways.
1: Yeah, And those other ways, by the way, are not just ancient alternatives. Mel. They're still here. They're, these are permanent human alternatives. Sure? I mean, uh, uh, the sodomites uh, of old. Of course, I suddenly have a gra- great
0: insight into uh, your current situation and your current concerns. As the Chairman of the President's Commission on Bioethics, one of the things that your commission is faced with and, in fact, you and I were talking about this before we started on air tonight, is the question of the extension of life and how desirable that might be. Since, since, apparently, you're now persuaded as a physician and biological scientist that there's work going on which does promise the possibility of a considerable extension of human
1: life. No, I think people are working at it, and one shouldn't bet against the scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, their uh, mutations have been found that extend so the, the lifespan. Egyptian, the Egyptians situation. are with us again, aren't they? The Egyptians are back. They never went away. They never went away. Um, I mean, the end of Genesis compares Mm -hmm. the death and burial of Jacob, whom his sons have to carry on their shoulders all the way from Egypt. Back to the Cave of the Patriarchs. Back to the Cave of the Patriarchs, with the death of Joseph, who becomes a mummy in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And here are the two alternatives. Do you try to embalm the body and hope for reanimation? Or do you bury the body and keep the person alive in memory and pass on the way to your sons? By the way, uh, one last matter
0: before we go back to the, the narrative and go, and go to the story of the ordered sacrifice uh, of Isaac. Um, you know Harold Bloom of Yale and uh, the other young fellow, another Rosenberg, who worked with him, and they brought out a book some years ago arguing that one of the main hands in the making of uh, the Old Testament narrative is an author, uh, whom they identify as J for Jerusalem, and they say of that author that it was a woman in King David's court, probably a princess. Is there any basis for that conjecture? Uh,
1: I I couldn't refute it, but I don't see why it matters. <laughs> I mean, what we want the speculation about the author. Well, they do want to argue sort of a feminine touch. Uh, in, look, in, oh no, there there is this much I would agree. Um, th- th- one of the things that the Bible is polemicizing against are those cultures in which to be a man means to be a warrior. Yeah. And here the task is to get the males interested in educating their young. Now we go off the mountain to sacrifice Isaac right after we first
0: <laughs> give up some of our time for commercials and a brief newscast. And we return to Leon Cass as we are drawing from but cannot possibly do Full justice to his rich interpretive um, account of the book of Genesis. The, The Beginning of Wisdom, Reading Genesis, is the title, and it is published by Free Press, and of this book, Kirkus Reviews says, a learned and fluent, delightfully overstuffed stroll through the gates of Eden. Mix Harold Bloom with Stephen Jay Gould, and you'll get something like Cass, a wonderfully intelligent reading of Genesis. Quite, quite true. Well, thank you. Utterly correct. Uh, I've had great fun and great pleasure, I should say, and rather than fun, in reading this book, nor have I read every word, and I mean to do so. Uh, but I've been in the book for the last four or five days, and I'm delighted by almost everything I turn to. Yeah. And I, it sets me musing, which is what you intend it, it's to exactly, do. To it's, a te-
1: it's a teaching book, Mel, yeah. and what hasn't been said is that it, it grows exactly out of my teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, people have complained who uh, were reading this in review mm-hmm. that I quote my students more than the rabbis. You do very often, yeah. uh, but I've learned an enormous amount from them, mm-hmm. and it is intended for people who would like to have a companion as they read. All right. So, what did you learn, either from further thought and close reading, or from your students, about what
0: is really the central dilemma of the book of Genesis? God's order to Abraham to kill is. Son Isaac.
1: Well, uh, one can't do justice to this story on one leg, and it is, it is the most Mm. awesome story in the book. Mm. And um, I'm pretty sure I haven't gotten to the bottom of it by a long shot. But I have a few suggestions to make. Um, Remember that when God calls Abraham, He calls him with a command and with a promise. Get thee from thy father's house. And I will make of you a great nation, I will make your name great, I will bless you, etc., etc., etc. Sevenfold bountiful promise. And Abraham goes and he has many adventures. Um, he has these adventures with the wife's sister He meets Pharaoh. He uh, has this trouble with Lot. He goes to war with the kings. Uh, he has a surrogate child through Hagar there's the Covenant of Circumcision, Uh, he has a conversation with God about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he witnesses the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Uh, he enters into a covenant with Abimelech, etc., Isaac is finally born, Ishmael is banished, etc. It's at that point where the reader is told that God tested Abraham. Abraham isn't told that this is a test we readers are told this is a test. What kind of a test? Uh, my suggestion is this is a this is the final examination of the education of Abraham, the education mm-hmm. which his adventures have produced. This is the doctoral orals. It? This it's worse than the orals. Uh, mm-hmm. And what is being tested is this: What is first in your heart, Abraham? Awe, fear, and reverence of the Lord. Or the love of the goods that the promise, uh, that the promise will bring you, and in particular the only tangible evidence that the promise is going to be fulfilled, namely this son which I gave you just uh, uh, years ago. Right. God is trying to find out whether Abraham is a follower of God because he wants the the rewards, or whether he is a follower of God, who. Uh, is first of all devoted uh, and wholeheartedly devoted to following God's way. He doesn't exactly command him. He says, please, take please your son, your only son whom you loveth, Isaac, and offer him up. And Abraham doesn't remonstrate with God, he goes. Um, And it's a terrible story. There's no question that this is a terrible story. The heart of the story turns out to be, for me, not just the fact that he goes, and not just the fact that he, in fact, will lift up the knife, and only the angel from heaven will stop him. But there is a conversation on the way up the mountain. It's the only conversation between father and son in the whole in the whole account mm-hmm. of Abraham. This is the only conversation. They and the have. son
0: is confused, and he's
1: asking, "Where's?" The God says, it, "I see the fire. I yeah. see the uh, uh, the the wood for the fire." Um, But where is the ram? Uh, And Abraham says, God will see for himself the lamb, my son. And the two of them walk together. Um, And this conversation, this conversation is the pedagogical work of the father. This is the only time they ever speak. So they might have spoken other times from the Bible's point of view. This is the quintessential father to son conversation. God will see for himself the lamb for the sacrifice, my son. And they go up together, united. The text says before the conversation, and the two of them went as one, and after the conversation, the two of them go as one. Okay. This is the, this at the center of the story, Abraham acting not as God's servant, but as father to Isaac, conveys, he actually tells, he speaks better than he knows. Abraham thinks that God has, in fact, provided the sacrifice, namely Isaac, but in the midst of this he offers a kind of comforting speech to his son who is confused, and it turns out how a man gets to speak better than he knows, what must be in him that enables him to make this kind of speech, even though he doesn't quite think it's true, there's a kind of voice of hope against despair which he utters and which becomes his legacy to his son. Abraham passes the test. I know lots of readers think he doesn't pass the test. The angel comes out and says, Now I know that you do fear God or revere God more than you love your only son. And the good news is, of course, God didn't want the sacrifice in the first place. In this story, too, the Bible is polemicizing against those cultures of the ancient yes, Near East. but is
0: it but is it good or bad news
1: that Abraham was absolutely prepared to kill his well, son? Well, we have to ask ourselves that. And... This is the place where see not only is Abraham being educated in these travels, so is the reader mm-hmm. When the reader is told this is an, this is a test of Abraham, the reader is sitting with God in judgment of Abraham and the question is when the Abraham, when the angel praises Abraham for having gone through with this, the question for the reader is, does the reader like Abraham in this story or not? Mm-hmm. And you can separate the sheep from the goats at that. Point. Well, then I'm a goat, because I must tell you that when I first encountered
0: this as a as a as a boy, I was astonished horrified. and dismayed, okay. horrified would be the word. And as I read and I've I've read the Book of Genesis a few times over my rather long life, but I hadn't read it in 20 or more years I think, uh, until just this week in preparation for this program. And once again I was astonished, dismayed, horrified, and I. Uh, could not identify.
1: Well, I, and I when have, I read
0: your commentary on it, I could not uh, g- give Abraham a pass.
1: Okay, we're uh, uh, we're on, we're on opposite sides, though. I, I uh-huh. have to say, um, uh, I think it may be that my reading is too shallow, Milt. I, I I would grant that. But let me say this: it seems to me that no, it's
0: probably far deeper than mine. mine. Well, I don't know. Just I mean, a primitive reaction. I I'll,
1: I'll give you, I'll give you two, two, two responses. Um, whether we know it or not and I don't mean this literally, but I do mean this in a powerful way. Parents are always sacrificing their children to some Mm -hmm. God or other. Uh We are always, in a way, trying to lead our children to look up to wealth or power or this God or that. And what this story does is to concentrate that act of paternal sacrifice into one kind of moment. Will you spend your son's life, what, what are you going to spend your life's, your son's life in the service of. Now this is horrible because it means spending it quite literally and exhausting its blood, but I think Abraham shows that he is somehow fit to be the father of God's nation because first in his heart is not his love of his biological son, but the dedication of that son's life happily as a lived life and not just as a as a, as a, mm-hmm. as a dead animal sacrifice to a being that demands of Abraham a call to righteousness and holiness
0: so the larger Uh, meaning for the community would be and for the community who read the book for the Jews who now have the Hebrew Bible uh, the larger meaning is uh, our lives must not be merely for our lives but must be for a transcendent
1: power who informs and defines our communal existence yeah and the good news is it is to be in this life that that God does not Mm -hmm. in fact demand the sacrifice of the children. It's yes. not a God who wants to mm. roast meat or roast human flesh in order to satisfy some perverse cravings, mm-hmm. but that he wants us to live, but to live in the light of a command to be righteous and a call to be holy. I should say, by the way, Milt, that when and for some reason I've always liked that story. I mean, it was only when my daughter, my oldest daughter, read this in Sunday school when she was about five. Uh-huh. Uh, and was taught by a close friend of ours who reported that Sarah turned as white as a sheet. The blood simply drained mm. from her face. No surprise. That a father could ever do sure. such a thing. Sure. And I have to confess, it was the first time in my life that I ever read that story from the child's point of view.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, can, I, can I make one sequel to this? Of course. The thing that most people don't notice is that although the two of them go up the mountain together, at the end of the story, it says Abraham returned to his men, and Isaac doesn't come back with
0: him. And in fact, as I think you point out, uh, they don't have any further conversation
1: until Abraham's on his deathbed. Not even on his deathbed. Uh, they, they don't. They're they, not together until that. The, that until I, until Isaac and Ishmael come to bury all the already yeah. dead Abraham. You never yeah. see them together. Yeah. So the question is, what kind of a legacy is this? In which Abraham gets his son back as a living son, but the father-son relation is fractured. We uh, we're doing pill-pull of a
0: sort, but right. we don't have the time to do it fully. Right. And we're going in about two minutes to some commercials. But let me invite you right now to begin a quick overview of all the rest of the story of what happens next. Yeah, let's take it. Uh, let's now go on to Isaac and Rebecca, and uh, their sons okay. Jacob and Esau, and on to Joseph and on to the misadventure uh, in Egypt, et cetera. Okay. Well, the, the first generation... We managed... can't do all of that in two minutes,
1: I'll but do... start it, and shortly we stop, and then we'll continue. It. The, the first generation is founded. A son is born, he is not sacrificed, and he is ready for the task of mm-hmm. perpetuation. Isaac's not the man his father was. Fortunately, Abraham finds him a wife suitable to the occasion, the, the wonderful is... Rebecca. The butch is Rebecca. She's She's spectacular. Yeah. The servant finds him her. The like servant that. finds him. Uh, it's providential. Yeah. Uh, he finds a woman who is not only kind to strangers but kind to dumb animals with energy mm-hmm. and. Yeah, uh, she waters the camels. She, I yeah, um, yeah. Um, ten camels, uh, twenty-five gallons each. It's spectacular. <laughs> right? uh, thanks to Rebecca's insight in the next generation you have two brothers who are capable of fratricidal conflict and it nearly comes to that. Esau was a a hairy hairy man. (laughs) And Isaac prefers him because he was manly um, Uh unlike himself and he brought him good venison to eat. Whereas Jacob is a quiet guy, a mama's boy, sits around the tent and is cunning. Jacob is the Odysseus Mm -hmm. of the Bible, a man who lives by his wits. It's perfectly clear that Esau has contempt for the birthright. He sells it for a bowl of soup when he's hungry, and he and he has utter contempt for what it means to be the what firstborn. What is pottage? Uh, lentil soup, I suppose. Lentil soup. Tell. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, thanks to Rebecca, she rearranges things to get the blessing bestowed on the right son, on Jacob. But Jacob is himself in need of a kind of comeuppance. Um, because he thinks he can solve the birthright problem by his own cleverness. So he gets sent off for his own adventures to Rebecca's brother, Laban, who's a kind of schemer just like Jacob, and he gives him a taste of his own medicine. He falls in love with, the be- with Rachel, the beautiful daughter of right. Laban. Right. Um, and we fall in love with Rachel, with Jacob. Mm-hmm. But and I won't spoil the readers. Uh, yes, uh, to learn
0: how this all works out. Just hang in there. We'll be right back after these words. (laughs) So, now the abbreviated version of the story. Isaac uh, thinks, well, he falls in love with Rachel, but uh, Laban pulls a... Jacob uh, falls uh, in love. Jacob falls in love with Abel, with with Rachel, Rachel, but her father Laban pulls a dirty trick on him.
1: Yes, uh, he works uh, seven years for his beloved Rachel, but on the wedding night, uh, presumably everybody had too much to drink. They
0: do the old switcheroo.
1: They, They do the switcheroo, and he winds up uh, in bed with uh with the older sister leia uh mm-hmm. and discovers this only in the morning uh and says look work another seven years we'll give you the other one too he in fact he says to him it's not our way here mm-hmm. to uh to uh, advance the younger before the elder a kind of subtle dig mm-hmm. at jacob who himself uh, advanced his own younger cause against his elder brother um, and one of the interesting things here is i mean two mm-hmm. two things are important to stress um, uh, first of all, the reader with Jacob will fall in love with the beautiful Rachel, mm-hmm. like all normal people would, but it turns out... I must
0: tell you, I must confess, my mother's name is Rachel. It's Rachel. It was Rachel.
1: Well, um, Rachel. Rachel. You'll, you'll forgive me if I suggest that if you read carefully, it turns out she's not the right wife. Mm-hmm. Um, the more pious, the uh, the wife who's more in the spirit of things, turns out to be Leah. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is a problem, I mean, two wives is rivalry, and here you actually have, if Cain and Abel is the paradigmatic story about brothers, Leah and Rachel tells you something about what it is that sisters fight about, and they fight about fertility, and they fight about the love of the husband.
0: And the advancement of their, of and their the progeny. advancement
1: of their progeny. Yeah. Jacob has one woman, one wife that he loves because she's beautiful. And he doesn't care whether she has children. She comes to him and says, give me children or I die. And he says, what, am I in God's place? I mean, don't blame me. And he doesn't really want her to have children. It would spoil her beauty.
0: He also has the handmaidens of each of the wives. And he has
1: the handmaidens. He's got a harem. Right. Well, it turns out that the rivalry is responsible for getting getting us from one household where they kick out one son and perpetuate through one son. They finally get, as a result of the rivalry between these sisters and and also the handmaids, they get to 12 sons. So you have a kind of incipient tribe. And then the question is, can you go from household... Uh, without, by the way they mm-hmm. 've succeeded in each previous generation, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau to avoid fratricide of the sort you saw with Cain and Abel well, Something
0: except that good has been done except that the the rivalry between uh, Ishmael and Isaac gets acted out Still, a number a millennia later if Ishmael is indeed to be seen as the the source of the arab people
1: no that's that's certainly true, and the text says uh, yeah. that Ishmael will be a wild ass of a man, and he will be in the face of his brothers yeah uh these are one of the nice things about genesis if misdeeds are done they get buried in rocks and they come back to bite you it's not like machiavelli where necessity excuses mm-hmm. evil doing you pay for your evil doing here in any there's, case there's no evil person who gets away with it in
0: in uh, genesis or in the
1: whole old testament it comes back it comes mm-hmm. back if not in your generation the sins of the fathers I'm are I'm thinking forward
0: to uh to David as king. David and, uh, as king, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite.
1: Oh, uh, he's uh, prevented Bathsheba. Yeah, he's uh, there. He he loses uh, one of his uh, one of his beloved sons, yeah. Absalom, and uh, he's not allowed to build the temple. He's not, uh, So you pay for your sins. You pay for your sins. Um, even the sins that you can't avoid, you pay for, mm. which is very exacting let's come to the 12 sons and to the story of joseph okay the 12 sons uh are divided one and eleven um joseph is jacob's favorite he's a pretty boy he's described exactly as rachel of beautiful form and beautiful to look at um and he lords it over his brothers um he is his father's favorite he buys him the coat of many colors and it turns out that, uh, and he riles his brothers. Uh, he's a tattletale. He, he has these tr- grandiose dreams. It's bad enough he has them, but he tells them to them. Um, and the brothers hate him. They hate him. They're jealous of him. They don't like that he's a snitch. And they certainly hate him for his dreams. And his uh, dreams are supposedly prophetic. They are prophetic, um, though it's not absolutely clear. The one dream, for example... He has the dreams that he's out, they're out uh, winnowing, or uh, uh, gathering grain, and he dreams that the sheaves of his brothers will bow down to his sheave. And then he dreams that the sun and the moon and the eleven stars will bow down to him. And Jacob interprets the dream, what shall your father and mother and your brothers bow down to you? But the dream could have been an Egyptian dream of human mastery of cosmic nature. And Jacob, in fact, from the very beginning has Egyptian dreams. What kind of a shepherd dreams of harvesting sheaves of wheat? Mm -hmm. His dreams are more fit to Egypt. In any case, the brothers plot to kill him, and the fratricide is narrowly avoided. He's taken from the pit in which they throw him by some traders, and he winds up in Egypt where he rises. He sold to some passing uh, travelers on camels who take him off to Egypt. Right. But he's a charismatic guy.
0: When he gets there, the wife of the Egyptian that he's handed over to, um,
1: the wife of Potiphar, uh, falls in love with him. Right. And uh, he sort of toys with her, he refuses her advances, she traps him in the world's oldest case of sexual harassment, Um, (laughs) and uh, he gets cast into prison. but there he rises by interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh and winds up eventually interpreting Pharaoh's dream mm-hmm. and becomes uh, the Henry Kissinger of, uh, of Egypt. He's the <laughs> prime minister of Egypt. Well, he, he
0: interprets Pharaoh's dream as saying that we are enjoying seven fat years, but seven lean years will come. And, uh, and he persuades Pharaoh to
1: prepare for that by storing up uh, he, he, of, uh, he not only he not only sort of interprets the dream, but he writes himself into the dream as its solution. He, the puts on, he, he puts on the tip of Pharaoh's yeah. tongue, what you should do is point some guy who can know how to gather uh, in the plenty. And, and meanwhile, and, his brothers back in the land of Canaan are close to starvation. near starvation. And their father says, go to Egypt. Eventually, they go to Egypt. And to make the long story short, there is a kind of reunion in Egypt in which... Joseph, in fact, provides for his family, um, but he never becomes one amongst them. Yeah. And in fact. Well, he hides his identity from he, them for some he, time. He hides his identity. And in fact, in my account, Joseph really Egyptianizes. He has an Egyptian wife. Mm-hmm. Um, he tries to get his father to bless his two sons, um, mm-hmm. but the father sort of claims the two sons for himself. There is no tribe of Joseph. But, they, but the brothers move. Egypt. They move to Egypt, and in the the
0: Hebrew people really flourish and become a nation within the nation of Egypt.
1: They do, and um, uh, the Genesis, before they're cast into slavery by later pharaohs. Yeah, except that Joseph has a hand in that too. Joseph is the one who, in fact, during the years of famine, uh, in fact, gets the Egyptians to sell themselves into slavery. Joseph mm-hmm. is the guy who taught Pharaoh to enslave his own people and yeah. to get the Egyptians to do it. Now I got
0: a crucial question to come up with. Um, and I pose it to you in a moment after I first say to our audience, we're opening the phone lines. We will be getting to the phones in about five minutes right after some coming commercials. Uh, Anything you want to ask, or for that matter, want to say by way of interpretation concerning the first book of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis. Uh, The number, of course, is 591-7200. 591-7200. Get your calls in quickly, and we will get to you quickly. If you would rather, if you're listening to us, at a great distance over the internet, and you'd rather reach us via email, the email address extension720 at tribune.com. Extension720 at tribune.com. A question I have not raised, but lots of our listeners, and perhaps even some of our non Jewish listeners, uh, would want to have raised, is why did God make that particular covenant with that one people? Uh, and I can put it to you in another way um, a famous bit of doggerel. From the English academic scene. Uh, the British writer uh, William Norman Ewer uh, gives us this little uh, bit of doggerel. How odd of God to choose the Jews? And Cecil Brown, the British Jewish historian, responded, But not so odd as those who choose a Jewish God but spurn the Jews.
1: <laughs> well, um, why us? Well, and what well, did God mean when He chose us? Oh, well, I, I think that I think the question's backwards. Uh, God didn't choose the Jews. God chose to start His new way in the world. Um, and it says that when the call of Abraham, that Abraham, through Abra, Abraham, will be a blessing to all the nations, by being a bearer of God's way to the world. There were no Jews. Um, no. That is, uh, in fact, Israel isn't named uh, until Jacob. Israel, the Jacob, Lord changes Jake, Jacob's name Jake, Jacob acquires what will become the name of the people. Yeah. They don't become a people until they receive the law at Sinai, which is the people-making event. First the exodus and the emancipation from slavery, and then the giving of the law. But this is still intended, really, to be a light to all of the nations.
0: But can we find from Genesis itself any way of thinking about uh, the significant suffering of the Jews, a suffering that, of course... Uh, took its ultimate evil expression in the Holocaust, but which persists to this day. We've had a revival of anti-Jewish feeling, as you know, even uh, since uh, even in the last few years in relation to Israel and uh, anti-Semitism so-called, or anti-Judaic intensity, as it should more properly be called, is rather significantly on the rise again in Western Europe.
1: No, this is very, and it's very disturbing, and it has multiple causes. Some of it looks like the old anti-Semitism. Some of it, some of it, uh, as one of my colleagues pointed out, uh, looks like it, Europe is about ready to give up the nationalism for which it is famous. Mm-hmm. And whereas a few generations ago the Jews were despised because they were stateless, now they're despised because they want to have a home of their own uh, for their own. Alan people.
0: Dershowitz may have been wrong when he said a few years ago they used to want to kill us. Now they want to marry us.
1: No, I don't think. Uh, certainly not in Europe. That isn't isn't the case. Uh, fortunately, the United how does the States one
0: reconcile this places. with what we have in Genesis?
1: Oh, I'm not sure that you can. It's a, it's a long way. It's a long way off. Um, I mean, I think that uh, um, there is a certain way in which the Jews bear witness to a transcendent call. They're not the only ones, uh, but uh, in fact, in America, it seems to me serious Jews find themselves in closer alliance with serious Christians and tolerant serious Muslims than they do with uh, many in pagan America mm-hmm. um, but I, I don't I mean if if the question is how to explain the suffering of the Jews in the light of their chosenness that I think is an impossible task that's still the great mystery is I think it's a great mystery mm-hmm. but it's the claim of the chosenness of the people look Abraham was the first guy that God called who said okay I'll go I mean, the, other, the, the people who God might have mm-hmm. called who didn't go don't get into the book. Yeah. Uh, very nicely said, very
0: thoughtful. And uh, it takes a serious thinker to say, I'm, I'm stumped sometimes, which you've just done. Indeed. We pause. A quick round of commercials then on to the phones and possibly to some email. The phone number, 591-7200. I see one or two lines are available. If you have tried to reach us, try quickly again. And for email, which has infinite capacity, almost, uh, the address is extension 720, as one word, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. We will be on to your contributions right after this. And we will go directly to the phones. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number for your questions and or comments to Leon Cass, author of The Beginning of Wisdom, reading... Genesis, that important book and that utterly readable one just published by Free Press. And here is the first caller. Good evening, you're on the air.
2: Yes, good evening. I, I've i got to say before I offer my comments on the biblical mm-hmm. stories that I always enjoy this guest. It's very refreshing to hear a lively intelligence that is full of uh, verve and childlike wonder.
1: Thank uh, you very much. I appreciate that.
2: that. And uh, the it's it's and I must say it's contagious. I just have to have this book uh, yesterday. Um, the uh, there are two stories in Genesis that uh, seem to have, like everything else, been subject to uh, more scholarship recently, and they've always raised the difficult issue of favoritism. And apparently, the scholarship helps to clear that up. The first, of course, would be the story of Cain and Abel, where. Cain uh, becomes jealous because he was told that his sacrifice wasn't as good. And the more recent scholarship would suggest that there's something in the language which suggests that Cable, uh, Cable, (laughs) that Cain, that Abel carefully selected his gift from all that he had produced, whereas Cain simply chose, uh, you know, the first thing that he laid eyes on. In other words, Abel carefully chose the best, and Cain just chose. Any old thing, and then the other story that raises the issue of favoritism is, of course, the one that says Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? And and where the craftiness is done. And it the the, the scholarship would seem to suggest that God is almost utilitarian in this case because a. Uh, um, I discussed this with a pastor some time ago, and he agreed that a better translation of the Hebrew might be, Jacob have I appointed, Esau have I passed over, or to paraphrase it in the vernacular, what God is saying is, Jacob is the guy that can get the job done, so I choose him.
1: No, very nice. Um, the, the, uh, I mean, the, the text doesn't quite say why God prefers, uh, uh, Abel's sacrifice, but I think if you work at it, and I, I, I have a lot of fairly good, dis- uh, lengthy discussion of this in the text, I think what you say is is, is absolutely correct. Well, I got that from the History Channel. Um, well, it's in the text. I mean, it says a- Cain, uh, Abel, Abel brought the firstlings of the flock and the fattest yeah. portions thereof. He gave the best parts.
2: Yeah, there's a specificity about that.
1: Right. Um, and also... Uh, it's not absolutely an innocent thing to be offering sacrifice in the first place. The question is what's your motive? And from the fact that Cain gets angry when his sacrifice is not accepted suggests that it wasn't simply an act of thanksgiving but might indeed have been an act of bribery. Uh, so that if you if you if, if you think through why it is that would occur to somebody to think that God liked to eat vegetables or meat um, without instruction, uh, you, you begin yeah. to see that Cain is offering Cain is offering a gift to God on the assumption that A, God likes gifts, and B, he would like what I would like. And by the way, I don't have to really give him the best of what I've got.
2: And a whole story of sibling rivalry uh, comes from that misinterpretation, namely the East of Eden by John Steinbeck. No, it, it, what's, uh, your, what's your take on the Jacob and Esau thing?
1: The Jacob and Esau is, I think, also, as you said, look, the task, the, the, the question is, once you've got this thing started uh, with Abraham, the task in the next generation is the task of perpetuation, in the presence of a father who prefers the wrong son for a low reason, and uh, the choice is either fratricide or cunning, because the only person who knows how to get, who knows what the right order is, is the wife. Yet she doesn't have the authority; they have to do it by guile. Sarah, we thank you for the call. Thank you. Very
0: interesting first question, and let's go to the second question. Five nine one seven two double zero, the number you are on the air. Good evening,
2: Hello, uh, this is regards to Abraham and the request of sacrifice for his son throughout the uh, entire Bible uh, the the old uh, Jewish scholars decry the other gods because they require sacrifices to them. Uh, how is a mere mortal? Uh, supposed to be able to divine between uh... you know like um, god making a request and uh... satan passing himself off as god making an evil request
1: well that's a. in fact that's that's a good question about being called altogether. Um, if uh, if milt rosenberg and i are walking down the street uh, after the show tonight and one of us hears a call a voice saying to us uh, you know get the out of Chicago and go to this land that I will show you. Um, it's first of all not clear whether we should uh, uh, buy a plane ticket or call the psychiatrist uh, or whether the voice is the voice of good or the or the voice of wickedness and that is a problem whenever people are uh, hear things um, but uh, in the case of the story of the of the request for the gift of Isaac. One could well wonder, uh, Abraham might well wonder, is this a satanic voice? But it seems to me it's the result of Abraham's education up to that point, and the fact that God, in fact, delivered on the promise of the Son to Abraham uh, when he is 100 years old that leads him to place his trust in and to show his awe and reverence for this Well, voice. what is being said, symbolically or metaphorically, by the author of the story? At that particular point yeah i think two things uh one is that abraham is a man who has the the reverence for the lord as first in his heart and as the psalms say the beginning of wisdom is the fear and mm-hmm. all reverence of the lord second this lord in fact doesn't want sacrifices doesn't want the sacrifice he wants life lived in devotion to the calling of uh, a righteous and holy way of life.
0: The beginning of wisdom is the fear or reverence of or for the Lord, and you've titled your book The Beginning of Wisdom. What does reverence and fear of the Lord uh, connote to a comparative secularist? Uh,
1: Not much, Um, but uh, one of the suggestions I'm, I'm making in this book is that a child of skeptics who's simply curious to find, to find out what it was that his parents might have, the grandparents might have thrown over? Hmm. Could, if he allows himself to get into these stories, acquire the kind of education such that <laughs> when Abraham displays the awe and reverence and fear of the Lord, the reader might, in fact, applaud? Uh, Leon, does this, does this, does this indirectly
0: confess that you, in your own life, following. This pilgrimage through literary materials have come closer to the religion of your fathers of your
1: great grandfathers of my ancestors uh i the, the answer is is yes uh i don't i mean i personal confessions are it seems to me out of out of place here, and my practice is still not what it should be but uh having spent most of my adult life on the Sort of with the Greeks and the philosophical pursuit mm-hmm. of wisdom, yeah. uh, I am. I've moved much more from the f- away from the pole of Athens towards the pole of Jerusalem.
0: You accept that division, which is which has been drawn by other scholars.
1: Um, I, I mean, greater greater people than I have tried to make yeah. a marriage between the Maimonides, Thomas Aquinas, Severus, mm-hmm, exactly. and so on. Um, uh, but and, and maybe that's best. I think what's what's the Greek way as compared to the Hebrew way well uh, how do they differ the the Greek way would say the beginning of wisdom is in wonder Mm -hmm. um, and wisdom is to be obtained or at least sought by unaided human reason following the eyes looking at nature and seeking its cause for the uh, biblical way the beginning of wisdom is uh, to be found not by unaided human reason, though what the wisdom that's offered is not irrational, but is to be found not with the eyes, uh, not with reason following the eyes to the tree of knowledge of good and bad in your garden, mm. but is gotten through the ears, hearkening to the commanding voice of the just and righteous God. So it's, on the one hand, come let us reason together, on the other hand, it's come let us seek together. Yes, um, or in the case of Greek wisdom, it is knowledge for its own sake. Mm-hmm. In the case of Hebrew wisdom, it is knowledge in the service of a righteous and holy life. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean you have to have a lobotomy to be a practicing Jew or Christian. I mean that uh, there are these texts uh, address us as thinking beings and not simply mm-hmm. as obedient ones. Uh, um, and there's much to be learned and thought about. Uh, and in fact the book Almost compels engagement and reflection, but in the end, uh, the goal of the Hebrew Scriptures is not the conversation you and I are having here. Milt, though that's welcome and part of it, but and in fact, I think one would say one does honor to the Torah to talk about it seriously. It's it is a form of piety, but in the end, there is observance as well. Our our
0: distant fathers, yours and mine, we both hide from uh, the pale of settlement in Eastern Europe. Uh, our distant fathers probably our great-grandfathers or great-great-grandfathers sat in the synagogue every day and uh... analyzed these and related texts constantly it was what a good jew should do indeed at least in his in the time when he wasn't working and maintaining his family no, that, that's correct I mean,
1: study and prayer yeah. and uh... question i suppose is whether uh... whether study is uh, a certain kind of prayer uh, i have to confess i'm better at study than i am at prayer though i try right.
0: of course there's also the sociological matter of considerable interest that when the jews came to this country particularly the ones from eastern europe uh, in large in larger number than other immigrant groups their sons and later their daughters as well became intellectual or intellectoid and uh, went into the professions in a larger number, though many others went into commerce to be sure. But we do know that when it comes to eminent men of science and men of the humanities, particularly of science in this country, in certain generations there's been a tremendous overabundance of Jews.
1: Well that that's certainly true, and it is uh, a legacy really of, of originally of bookishness and interpretation yes, yeah. and the kind of high premium... It's the move from of, sacred uh, books to secular right. books, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, the grandchildren are again getting an interest in the sacred books. Yes, yes, I'm aware um, of that. And that's because I think the young people have somehow have got a kind of spiritual hunger and have discovered that not only don't we live by bread alone, but mm-hmm. not even by bread and circuses. Uh, speaking of bread and circuses, it's time for some commercials. Last round and then
0: directly back to the phones, 591-7200. And once again it is worth asserting that the new book by Leon R. Cass, it is essential to assert that the new book is utterly readable, of vast uh, quality and uh, of deep fascination, and it is titled The Beginning of Wisdom, Reading Genesis, published by Free Press. Our phone number, five nine one seventy two hundred. you are on the air. Good evening. Uh, hello. Yes, sir.
3: I would like to ask why, beginning with Ishmael, six out of six firstborn sons get the shaft in uh, Genesis. Ishmael sent into exile, Esau gets nothing, Reuben gets a curse rather than a blessing, Manasseh gets a lesser share than uh, his younger brother Ephraim, Ur er gets killed by Yahweh, and Zerah is the firstborn son because he gets the red ribbon tied behind his finger, but he doesn't even come out of the womb first, and it's Perez, the younger one, who's the ancestor of King Solomon and David, whereas Moses later condemns this and says the firstborn son needs a double gets a double share even if it's of an unloved uh, mother. Why does six out of six cases of the firstborn son get the shaft, and doesn't that indicate that the ultimate source of the patriarchal tales may well be a jealous younger brother?
1: Um, Do I know this questioner? Do we know each other? No. Oh, okay. It's a terrific question. Uh, Wonderful. I I thought I recognized the voice. Look, um, one of the things that the Bible is to begin with polemicizing against silently is the preference for the naturally first. Uh, The womb opener, the one who comes first, Cain in fact was the first and has therefore had pride of place with his mother and in the family, Uh, one wants to destabilize that preference for the firstborn, uh, usually the one who is assured of all the rights and privileges. Uh, That is part of the Bible's polemic against doing things the natural way, whether it means worshipping the heavenly bodies or worshipping the land in which you think you naturally belong. That's why um, uh, Abraham has to have a land which is not his native land, but is his, not by title of birth, but by God's gift. And similarly, when Joseph brings his two sons and wants the blessing bestowed on the oldest one, and he's, in effect, saying, look, things are all set here now. We can go to the, to the, to the uh, legacy of, of allowing the firstborn to rule. Jacob, in effect, says, not so fast, my Egyptian son. You still haven't gotten things settled. It's only after the law has, in fact, been given that you can then have the, uh, the passage of tradition primarily first through the firstborn because the firstborn is now subservient to the law. Um, some of the other sons actually help their disqualification along. Esau is a hothead and, uh, in fact, displays his contempt for the birthright. Isaac, uh, Ishmael is in fact a mocker, shown to be mocking and making sport of, of Isaac. Uh, Joseph has his own troubles. Uh, uh, Reuben shows himself also with the the episode with the father's concubine, but uh, Ephraim and Manasseh are, as far as we know, absolutely innocent. But I think in every generation there is a destabilizing preference uh, f- uh, for the second born in order to uh, to counter the natural preference almost everywhere for the first born. I think it's a philosophical point and not simply the resentment of younger children. How does that suit you, sir?
3: It just seems since it's six out of six cases, it's so dramatic that the Bible... I think, is trying to make an important point there. Oh,
1: I, I, And I agree, and I, I, at least, whether I'm right or not, the point that I've made is an important point, whether it's the true one we could continue to discuss, but look, if all the other nations of the world worship the heavens uh, and, and the sun especially, or the earth, um, and who treat the, uh, the fruit of the womb, the first fruit of the womb, as the title of legitimacy, and who therefore treat... Uh, natural strength rather than the strength of what's in your heart is first. You have to lean against this with every way possible. and You do it as often as you can until things are absolutely set and the people live under the law and they know what actually has to come first. Then you want to make sure that in every household there really is somebody. Since if you have a firstborn son, you have an inheritance. You might never have more than one, Um, but until you've got the thing established, Uh, The preference for the firstborn is very often the indulgence of parental pride and the pride of the firstborn in being first, and that's not the title to supremacy in God's way. Sir, thank you for a most interesting question.
0: Okay. And let's work in a few more quick ones. 591-7200. Good evening. You're on the air. Hello, Dr. Cass. Hello. Hello. Uh,
3: I really enjoyed your interview on uh, Bill Moyers' show this past weekend. It was wonderful. Thank you. Um, my question is: What is your feeling? What are your feelings concerning kind of the burgeoning growth of evangelical Christianity in this country and its subsequent views—the uh, the literalist view of, of Genesis, the creation stories, mm-hmm. and an essential uh, inerrancy view of? Of the uh, early Genesis stories and what it's done to science, evolution, and even modern-day politics.
0: That's a very welcome question because the one thing that I simply avoided, because there was going, going to be restriction in time, was to look at the first ten or twelve chapters, which
1: gives us the creation story. Yet
0: uh, we we should handle it, and here it is.
1: Yeah. No. no uh, I. Um I want to say that, uh, in many respects, I actually am rather friendly to the growth of evangelical Christian movement in this country for uh, the moral seriousness of this community uh, and uh, its uprightness. But with respect to scriptural reading, uh, we read very differently. I also am a literal reader in the sense that I think every word counts, but I think that the text is filled with so many ambiguities and contradictions. Uh, And I also don't think that it's giving us primarily a historical Mm. account, but a pedagogical account, an anthropological account, to show us not what happened once, but what would happen always in the absence of biblical instruction. So uh, when it comes to science, it seems to me that the first chapter of Genesis is not a kind of an account that science could either disprove or prove and we don't have time to do it in, in, in detail. But the important thing of the first chapter, the one of the most important things of the first chapter is the demonstration that the sun and the moon and the stars are not gods but creatures, that man among the creatures is closest to God and most godlike. And the proof for that can be offered by what's actually in the text itself. You don't need the biblical authority to understand. If you understand the structure of those creatures, Mm -hmm. my man is the highest being. And the text, in a way, leaves something of a mystery that hangs over the ultimate beginning uh, when it's not clear whether the text says there was creation out of nothing or there was something there to begin with and creation proceeded by separation. I don't think uh, the people who try to use science to prove the truth of the Bible are on the right track. For a recent program on evolution, uh, we
0: looked at um, uh, the text of uh, the Pope's statement on evolution, in which he yields, concedes, or acknowledges that it all could have worked more or less the way Darwin says, and he favors science. He says, so long as you don't uh, ignore scripture. But he he, he says, what we learn from scripture is that the animating force and the beginning was God. Mm -hmm. Uh, We then construct uh, the rest of the story in terms that suit that time and this time. But uh, so long as you allow God as the source of soul or spirit, which is not to be accounted for in mere materiality, then uh, evolution is fine with us. And I would think you could also say that modern cosmology is fine
1: with us. No, exactly right. Um, The Big Bang, I think, could be made to fit with this. And uh, in in the Middle Ages, in fact, the question about the days of creation led some people to think that there was an evolutionary account, that the creation days were not real days. My friend, I hate to tell you this, I hate to acknowledge it myself,
0: but time is up. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's been a deep pleasure for me. The new book by Leon Cass, The Beginning of Wisdom, Reading Genesis, is available wherever they sell books.